0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. In Genesis 126, God says, Let us make man in our image. Since this is the creation of humanity... He couldn't have been speaking to humans, right? So, whom was God speaking to? One common interpretation is to say, He was speaking to another person within His being, God the Son. But this is quite a strange idea. Honestly, it sounds like a multiple personality disorder. In any other literature, when we encounter the word us, we know it means the speaker and whomever he or she is speaking to. Why do we suddenly get all complicated when God says us? Who else was there? The angels. Join me as I present the case for why Genesis 126 and the other us texts should be taken as God speaking to his heavenly court. We do appreciate uh, Sean
1: and uh, always enjoy hearing uh, him. And uh, the title of this paper is Let Us Make Man.
0: And uh, we're looking forward to hearing what you got to say. So for the first seminar of the evening, Sean Finnegan. Thank you. You know, there's this uh, verse in Genesis 126 that uh, has, has troubled a lot of people and uh, that I, through, through looking at other things, have seen... Uh, in, in, in a very clear way lately. So I hope to share that with you. Um, does everybody have the, the paper that is uh, hot with ink as it just came off the, uh, the printer up there? If anybody doesn't have it, uh, you can raise your hand, and I think uh, we'll be able to get the, that number. Yeah. Okay. So what I was speaking about last time uh, was, in the beginning, was about the person. You know, the God is is one singular person. You know, you have the word he there applied to God over and over again. Uh, I don't know if somebody actually counted these or if this is just a ballpark estimate, but I've heard 20,000 times you have personal pronouns and verbs used of God. And so the argument then would be since he is a he, since God is a he, he is one individual. He's not three individuals. Uh, independent minds, because then we would find what word instead? We, or they, or our, right? We say, let. Uh, in, the, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It would say, they created. It wouldn't say he created. The verb contains the pronoun in Hebrew. So, um, Or if you like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that they gave their only begotten son, or something like that, you know. So we have the he. We're so used to it, we don't even realize that the he is a solid testimony to the oneness of God 20,000 times in, in the Bible. Um, and so as soon as I mention that, a lot of times somebody will say, well, what about the us verses? You know, what about those us verses? Because those are the first verses that people like to go to to talk about how God is a plurality in unity. He has a compound unity is, is what is um, uh, presented. So just to start off, I th- I'd like to read Genesis 126. I have it at the bottom of the front page here, or you could use your, your Bible. Um, and Genesis 1.26, uh, actually you might want to just turn there in the Bible because uh, maybe I'd like to do a little context. Um, <clears throat> Genesis one twenty-six is uh, the sixth day of creation and the creation... Account of Genesis chapter 1, uh, the birds and everything else has been made, the trees and the uh, solar and lunar bodies and everything else. And so now we're all the way at the pinnacle of creation, which is, which is man and woman. And so Genesis 1 uh, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What a wonderful uh, description of man, that in God's intention, man and woman would be there as his authority structure on earth, that they would have dominion over the earth um, and they would be able to rule over it in this loving relationship with the Father, and that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and that they would be able to enjoy fellowship with God forever. It's just such a beautiful beginning and yet of course we know what happened but we get it back in the end so that's exciting. but what I want to focus on is where it says let us make man in our image because it says and God said let us make man in our image And so there's a number of different theories that have been pr- proposed here. you know why is God saying us? because it says let, God said let us but God's one person you know one single individual so why is he saying us and there have been a number of different ideas that have come forth in the other three scriptures that i'd like to mention because there's only four of these you know out of the thousands and thousands of times that it says he or my or me or i there's four say us uh, so if i you know i'm not a betting man but i would put my money on the one person side as opposed to the three person side from that point of view and in genesis 322 Uh, We should turn there because this is right after the fall and man and woman are being kicked out of the garden of Eden. And we'll start in verse 21. Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And Yahweh God said, the Lord God said, man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken, and he drove the man out and placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden, or, and placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. So, again, we have an us verse there. You see that in verse 22, right? God, man has become like us, knowing good and evil. So that would be a second one. The third one is chapter 11. Uh, so let's go there and get this one. From, become, you know, refamiliarize ourselves with this verse. It's uh, Gen- Genesis 11:7, which is the account of the Tower of Babel, where uh, man was making himself this uh, structure to reach up to the heavens to exalt himself. And God says, in verse uh, 20, 20, uh, or it's not 22, is it? Yeah, seven. Come, let let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So Yahweh, the Lord, scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. So he says, he goes down and he looks and he sees, well, these people all have one language. You know, they can, they, they're, they're, this one language thing is not good for them. Teamwork doesn't work well for depravity. And so humans, when they when they work together in that in that scheme, they do bad things rather than good things as a team. And so God says, let's just... Uh, d- d- confuse the language, and we'll uh, you know that'll keep mankind intact for at least a few more centuries. So But it says there, let us go down and confuse their languages. So that's there'll be another us verse. Uh, you can go over to the next page there, page two. The traditional understanding is that these places prove that God is composed of multiple persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are conferring together to act. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working this out together. They say, well, let's go do this over here. And so God did this thing, whatever it, you know, whether it be the creation of man or the kicking out from the Garden of Eden or the confusion of the languages. This view, although popular, is not the only interpretation that makes sense. In order to shed light on this, let's consider times when men and women, when they saw God, when they had these visions in Scripture. And this is just one of those uh, studies that is so enlightening and invigorating and lifts God up because you get to see God in all these different contexts and you just can't help but fall down and say, God is incredible. He is amazing. So the first one is Isaiah 6, and if you remember the backdrop of Isaiah 6, you have uh, Isaiah there, and the whole nation is is really in bad shape. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah is prophesying. He says, listen up, you you, uh, people of Sodom and you citizens of Gomorrah. I mean, he's calling his own uh, country Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it doesn't get worse than that. It's not like there's a worse word to use other than that. And that's the, the amount of moral trouble that was, that was around there, moral degradation. So Isaiah gets this vision in the midst of this corrupt uh, society, and he says, In the first year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lift lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Reminds you of that song, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a good song. It comes from Isaiah 6. And you can you just imagine being Isaiah there, uh, the doorposts of the temple shaking, you're seeing God on His throne with the... I mean, what is a seraph anyhow? These creatures that are flying around, and they are even... They have these six wings, right? And two wings they use to cover their face. They don't even dare look at God because of his holiness here. And, they, and the, the holy, holy, holy is not holy as the Father, holy as the Son, holy as the Holy Spirit, uh, as has been advocated by some, but it is the Hebrew way of saying something to the highest degree. They did not have exclamation points. So this would be like exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Holy, holy, holy. When a Hebrew writer wants to emphasize something, they use a parallelism or a repetition. And so Jesus, before he says uh, important things, he says, Amen, amen, I say to you. Which comes out in the King James, Verily, verily, or in the NASB, truly, truly. So this is holy, holy, holy. I mean, there is absolute holiness here in God that is seen. And Isaiah's immediate response is to just hit the deck. Drop down and say, I am an unclean man of unclean lips, and I dwell among an unclean people. Uh, woe is me! I am undone, for I've seen, the, you know, the Lord of hosts in His glory. And so, what happens is one of the seraph, seraphim—I am—is just plural in Hebrew. You say seraphs, seraphim, same thing. So a seraph flies over and takes a coal off the altar and puts it to Isaiah's lips, and he's cleansed. And so now he can, he can you know, sort of exist in close proximity to God without feeling like he's going to perish in an instant. And then something interesting happens. God asks a question. So you have these seraphim, these six-winged creatures, and you have Isaiah in the room and God. And God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah perks up and declares, I will go, send me. And so, I would say that God is seeking a human agent through whom He can work in this generation, in the generation of Isaiah. And He's saying, who will go for me and those with me, my, you know, the, the seraphs or me and, and my heavenly court? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I will go. Um, God seems to follow this pattern again in Ezekiel chapter 1, which reads like a science fiction novel. If you ever read Ezekiel chapter 1, it's... Hard to get your mind wrapped around that. Exactly what's being said there, but apparently we have the mobile throne room of God carried about by these four caribs or caribim, which are, is another word for a spirit being. You know, these aren't really well described uh, in in Scripture, um, <clears throat> in the sense that we can place them exactly. You know, who, who exactly? What what are the these these beings? But they're carrying about this mobile throne. That God is, is moving on. You have the wheels there that are going wherever the, the caribs go. So you know, I invite you to read that. But my point there, again, would be God is not pictured alone in Ezekiel chapter 1. He is pictured with some sort of spirit attendants that are waiting on him or you know there in his uh, heavenly court. And so we see that in Ezekiel chapter 1, which which we won't read, but you you should read it. And again, Ezekiel's response is to hit the floor and sort of lie like a dead man, so to speak, because he has just seen this vision of God. Many years later, after that, uh, we have Daniel, who in chapter 7 sees this terrifying vision of four beasts that come out of the water, and one of them looks like a lion, and one looks like a bear, and one looks like a leopard, and this last one, he can't even find a animal to compare it to. It's just a terrifying beast, which stands for the last kingdom to come before Christ comes, I'd say. And then after that, he sees the throne room of God. And I have it printed out at the bottom of page two. I kept looking until thrones, see, there's the thrones, right? They were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. It's another great song there, right? The ancient of days. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning with fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. So this is the throne room of God that Daniel is getting to peer into. And it's incredible. You have a, a throne that's on fire and these these thousands of beings, you know, angels or spirits or whatever they are, in attendance before him. Does anybody have the King James on that for myriads of myriads? you have that, anybody? It says 10,000 times 10,000. That's how the King James renders that. What I get from that is a lot of these beings. And so again, God is pictured in the midst of on his throne in the midst of all these beings around him. The last Bible prophet, John, the one who wrote the book of Revelation, I'd say, um, well, it says he wrote the book of Revelation, so I don't have to say that, but he saw the throne room of God again. If you Anybody ever read Revelation chapter 4? What you have there between chapter 4 and uh, another chapter, uh, chapter 5 and 7, you have the description of this throne room, and you get the idea that there's... There's a description starting from the middle and then working out in concentric circles. And so in the very center of the throne room, there's God himself seated on his throne. And then you go out a little bit from there and you have these four beasts that are full of eyes. That's all I got. You know, I can't really tell Read it for yourself. It's just incredible, this this, uh, language that's used here. And then you go out in another ring from the throne room and you have 24 elders who are the 24 elders? I, I don't know. But they're there in the throne room of God in the vision of John in Revelation chapter 4. And then you go out a ring beyond that. And what's, what's beyond the 24 elders is are, are these thousands, it says myriads upon myriads of angels that are around that. And so we have this description of God in the center. And you have the lamb there in chapter 5. I shouldn't forget the lamb is there, right there with God. And... The idea is that God is not some solo being so far out in the middle of heavenland that no one ever goes near him or interacts with him, but instead, God is surrounded by these creatures. And to get a better handle on how God's leadership style works, that'd be a good title for a book, right? Those business books sell, don't they? Uh, God's leadership style. Uh, let, I'd like to look at the prophet Micaiah, because he really doesn't get enough sermon time, first of all. <laughs> Nathan wants to preach on him. So. Yo, you have? Yeah, he's a good prophet, huh? Yeah, he got a, a shot to the mouth for speaking up for God and then thrown into prison. Prophets usually get a rough time, don't they? But Micaiah is there, and it's it's, again, one of these times where you have... The, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel is not doing well because Ahab is in charge. Ahab is the one who married Jezebel, I think. And she was the, uh, the daughter of the priest of uh, Baal or Baal in that other place there up, up north. And so the, the land was not doing well. Ahab was a wicked king and Ahab wanted to go to battle. And he wanted the king of Judah to come with him. He wanted Jehoshaphat to come with him. Because Jeho- Jehoshaphat, he was, he was on the ball, you know. So he sends word to Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat says, all right, I'll, I'll go with you. You know, we're both descendants of Israel. You know, we can fight a battle together. So Jehoshaphat's there in the land of Israel uh, with King Ahab. And he, he says, well, let's, let's see what the prophets are, would say, you know, give us any guidance from God on this military endeavor. And so he has all these prophets come forward, and all the prophets are saying, oh, go, you'll win, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll lick them, it'll be no problem. And I, I think maybe these were false prophets, but uh, Jehoshaphat says, isn't there a prophet of Yahweh around? You know, did you have a prophet of the Lord in Israel? I'm sorry, but where I come from, we don't, we don't go to the, these prophets, we go to the prophets of Yahweh. And so Ahab kind of stiffens up, I, I imagine, a bit right there. He says, well, there's this one guy, Micaiah, but I hate him. He never prophesies good about me. And so Jehoshaphat says, well, go get him. We're not going anywhere until we hear from this guy. So they go and he sends the the guy that convinces you to stay in line, you know, that guy. He sends him to go get Micaiah. And this guy advises Micaiah. He says, now, all the other prophets have said the king's going to win the battle. So you might want to say something good this time because... You know, we have power over you and this is in front of the king of Judah. We don't want the king to look silly, you know. And so Micaiah, his response is, I'm, only, I'm, I'm going to speak, you know, what God tells me to speak. I'm not going to butter it up for you or anybody. Uh, and so Micaiah gets there and the, uh, you know, the king asks him, you what do, what do you think? And he says, oh, go, the Lord will give you the victory. It's just ridiculous sarcasm there. And the king says, come on, tell me, tell me seriously. And so begins the the prophecy there, which uh, I think I have it in your notes. I kind of got carried away there. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, the last paragraph on page three there. When Micaiah came before the kings, he was asked to prophesy, retorted sarcastically, go up and succeed. Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. Ahab then put Micaiah under oath to only speak the truth in the name of Yahweh. So Micaiah responded, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains. So Micaiah had had a vision, and he's relating it. Let, and it says, let each of them return to his house in peace. And so Ahab hears this. He gets all upset. I told you he's going to prophesy bad about me. Why do we have to get him? And But Micaiah doesn't stop there. He goes on. The next page, page 4, I've, I've got it directly quoted from Second Chronicles. And I think this is really the key to unlocking this whole us text issue. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of, of the Lord. Hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh is another one of these visions, right? I saw Yahweh. Where is he sitting? Seating. Sitting. On his throne. Right? He's, again, seated on his throne. And all the host of heaven standing on his right and on his left. Yahweh said, who will entice Ahab? So God's asking a question. Who's going to entice Ahab, the king of Israel, to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I'll do it. I will entice him. Yahweh said to him, how? And he said, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. God says, that sounds like a good idea. Then he said, you are to entice him and prevail also. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, Yahweh had put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. For Yahweh has proclaimed disaster against you. One heck of a prophecy. Uh, I think he ends up in jail for that one. And you never hear about him again after that. Ahab does die in that battle by the way. But the idea that I want to bring out here is that God is not working as a domineering leader. Now if there ever could be a domineering leader who gets it right all the time, who is all powerful to accomplish the deeds that he wants done, it would be God. You know, and nobody could really question him and say, well, why did you do it that way? But he does apparently does he's not doing it that way. He's involving others in his decisions. That he will get the job done is not up for question. He's going to get the job done. The question is how? And so he asks, you know, who's going to do this? Somebody comes forward and says, well, I'll do it. He says, well, how are you going to do it? Okay, we'll do it. You know, the job got done, but he's involving his heavenly court in that task. Uh, Boss, uh, you know, we've all probably had a boss who would not allow us to have any input in, you know, if we make any mistake, does the job for us. You know, it's it's a very uh, difficult situation to be in. And a boss with a controlling attitude shows a lack of appreciation for those who are under him or her. And so it's a very hard situation to be in. But God's not like that. He does not just do everything himself. Could God do everything himself? Yes, I think so. But there are some things... He does do himself, like the creation of the universe. He's very particular to point out that that's something he did alone. In Isaiah 44, 24, he specifically says, I created the heavens and the earth. I did it by myself. He says that by myself. No one was with me. I did it by myself. So that, that would be the difficult text for someone who would say he did it through Jesus. But I would say God created the heavens and the earth by himself. But even then, if you read Job 38, I think verse 6, it says... That the morning stars sang for joy and the sons of God shouted together. And so, although he's acting alone, he's not alone. In some way, the these angelic beings are participating, sharing, by praising him while he's doing this. So... It is probable that the majority of the times that God acts, he empowers others to participate. There's one of the uh, prophets, I think it's Amos, who says, "God does nothing without announcing it to his prophet, you know, before he does it." Yet even uh, or consider the verse, the first verse of Revelation. This is a good example. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. So God gave the revelation to Jesus to show to his bondservants the things that must soon take place and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. So there's a serious chain of uh, command here. Uh, we have God, who is the source, who assigned the message to Jesus, and Jesus is conferring this message to John to disperse to his brothers, and he's doing it through an angel. Jesus is, is, is working through an angel to get this message to John. Uh, God could easily have just directed John, to, you know, directly spoken to John and given him the book of Revelation, but he didn't choose to do it that way. He cares about his heavenly companions and works through them and with them to accomplish his own perfect will. So what does this all have to do with the us text, Genesis 1:26, 3:22, and 11, 7, and then the one on Isaiah 6, 8, which we read. In the first instance, God somehow is involving the heavenly beings in the making of man. You know how how he's doing is not very clear, but he's saying, "Let us make man in our image." So he, he's 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 announcing what he's doing to his heavenly court and involving them in that some way. Uh, In the second case, that's where he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. He says that God and his angels have the knowledge of both good and evil. He has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So it's just God talking again in his heavenly court. And then in the third case, the last one speaks about God and his angels going down to the tower to confuse the, the languages there. So God either working through them or working with them, is going down to the Tower of Babel to confuse the languages. So God is, is not a plurality, I'd have to say that, based on the 20,000 personal pronouns and Jesus' own testimony when he said, the Father is the only true God, John 17, 3. He does not act in a vacuum. God is not just empty in empty space, but he is one who acts with these spirit beings. And if he wants to say us in an uncomplicated way, like you and I would say us, like let's go... To the One God conference tonight. You're not saying, you know, well, I have an inner turmoil, and, you know, part of me wants to go, and part of me doesn't want to go, and, you know, we really have to pull this together, and you're the only one in the room, right? No, I don't think so. You know, if you say, let's go to the conference, you're talking to somebody else, and you're saying, let us, all of us, go. So I think that's what God's saying there. Now, this is largely my own perspective that I I came to through looking at these verses, especially that Micaiah incident. But I was shocked when I, when I, if you flip over to page 5, shocked in a good way, when I picked up the NET Bible, the NET Bible, and, which is a, uh, a pretty good translation. It's, it's got 60,000 translator's notes in it. And their way of proceeding for that was to say, every time that we're not, that we translate it this way, but it could have been translated that way, we're going to make a note. And say, well... It could have been translated this way, but we went this way because of these reasons and give all the reasons. So it's it's a, it's a cool Bible that gives you a lot of insight into the mind of the translator. And it has some study notes in it, too. And it's on uh, Bible.org, you know, so you can go on there and check out that Bible. But this is the note on Genesis one twenty six from that Bible. And these are this is a Trinitarian translating committee. You know, I, I looked at the, the school that these people are coming from almost... Not almost all, but most of them are Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, for which you have to sign a piece of paper that says you believe in the Trinity to even go there. So, I mean, this is a very conservative bunch uh, as far as that's concerned, the the Trinity doctrine. And they say the plural form of the verb has been the subject of much discussion. You're with me, page 5 in the funny print there? Through the years. So they're saying, look, none of us, you know, we've been talking about this for a while, this us. Why does God say, let us make man? And not surprisingly, several suggestions have been put forward. Many Christian theologians interpret it as an early hint of plurality within the Godhead. But this view imposes later Trinitarian concepts on the ancient text. Now that is something, if you can get your enemy to agree with you, that's twice as powerful. So they're they're saying, look, we're putting on the text what we believe. We, We shouldn't do that. Some have suggested the plural verb indicates majesty, but the plural of majesty is not used with verbs. So that would be like we, the Queen of England theory. And then C. Westerman argues for a plural of deliberation. That's, let's see, should I have coffee or tea? So the plural of deliberation, let us see, you know, and you're, you're just talking to yourself sort of, but that they sort of blow out of the water here. His proposed examples of this, do not actually support his theory. And in the case of the first one, it's David as a representative. In the case of the second one, which we read, God's talking on behalf of his heavenly court. And then we get to what they think the right interpretation for let us make man is. In its ancient Israelite context, the plural is most naturally understood as referring to God and his heavenly court. The most well-known members of this court are God's messengers or angels. In Genesis 3.5, the serpent may refer to this group as God's divine beings. You will become like gods, knowing good and evil. It could go gods or God, you know, depending on you know, how you translate the word Elohim there. See the note on the word evil in 3.5. If this is the case, if God is talking to his heavenly court when he says, let us, God invites the heavenly court to participate in the creation of, of humankind, perhaps in the role of offering praise. But he himself is the one who does the actual creative work. Of course, this view does assume that the members of the heavenly court possess the divine image in some way. Since the image is closely associated with rulership, perhaps they share the divine image in that they, together with God and under his royal authority, are the executive authority over the world. But that was a... Very good footnote there, isn't it? Sometimes footnotes make the book worthwhile. Um, in, most, in, in some cases, perhaps. Uh, so then I, I, I was reading this uh, uh, other note I had. Oh, it's it's right here. This is the NIV Study Bible, which is definitely not pre, pre, you know something that would tend to be Unitarian. I mean, this is uh, most definitely a uh, Trinitarian. Translating committee, you know, and they say on their note on Genesis 126, us, our, our, the note on that would be God speaks as the creator king announcing his crowning work to the members of his heavenly court. Brief to the point and exactly against the three in one idea for that verse, at least. And so I I, I would conclude that this let us is just like us saying, let us which means me and somebody else. I think that's the most natural way to interpret these texts. I think it's a way that does no damage to those 20,000 personal pronouns where God is always referred to as a singular individual. You know, we can have those still and the four us verses and still have a cohesive, uh, unified point of view. So that's that's what I wanted to share on. And uh, do we have any questions at all for that? John, behind you, there's a John that raises his hand. He probably never gets that microphone because he nobody sees him. When you... Do you know how to work that thing?
2: There we go. Um, I was going to ask uh, about Isaiah 40, where God asks the question about, um, I, I think he asked a rhetorical question about who is there with me. Uh, when I created the heavens and earth, how would you harmonize that with the presence of the, of the court, the whole, uh, you know, his angelic court being there with him when he created man?
0: Sure. That's Isaiah 44:24, I think, if the uh, memory serves. I had it there in the, the paper. Uh, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things... "...who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself." I think he's, he's claiming to be the exclusive creator. He's not saying nobody else was there, necessarily. Uh, and then 45:18 would be the other one to bring up at this point. "...for this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, He founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited." He says, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. So I, I think it, it, it works as it is, unless you're referring to a verse that I, uh, I didn't see there. Question over there. I just wanted to comment on that verse he quoted. Uh, it, it says, thus says the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, and it only says, let us create man in our image. Right. These verses are referring to the heaven and the earth. So it could be that God himself alone created the heavens and the earth. But he said, let us create man. When he created man, he re- referred to himself and others. That really helps. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's very clear from the language of Isaiah 44:24 that Yahweh is very concerned that he alone gets the credit for having created things. I mean, there's no other way to say it was just me than to say I was alone doing this I was, I did it by myself.
2: Sean, I have more, uh, like a, more than a question, like a statement, that uh, if I was just reading the Bible, like I did any other book and didn't come with preconceived conclusions,
0: I would read this and I'd read that section and I'd think, well, who could he be talking about? And I'd read it and I I wouldn't be Adam and Eve. I wouldn't think it would be the serpent, but I certainly would consider it being the cherubim because these are the only characters talked about in the first three chapter so uh, i think your conclusions are uh just you know from a context but you know all the
2: other evidence you just gave is a wonderful presentation
0: thank you yeah it's interesting in chapter 3 22 when he he, uh banishes them from the garden that he puts two it doesn't say two does it It's two cherubim uh there so i mean apparently they were around at that time even from just the context yeah
2: I just uh, never understood this point. Um, when God says, let us make man in our image, are we to understand that God looks like man does with arms and legs and such? And if so, did he have some attendants there who also look like that? Because some of these other people, these other angelic beings have wings, and we don't have wings.
0: No, we don't. Um, that's a good question. Uh, the idea of image, uh, can me- it's a pretty flexible idea. Um, first of all, I would say that since the immediate context is dominion, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the cattle of the field and let him have dominion over the earth. I would say that since it's so close to dominion, and that's the the line of reasoning that the net Bible took there was that the image refers to dominion or authority, um, it could also include other things, too. It doesn't necessarily have to be limited to that. Uh, someone that would argue for your point uh, probably is Wayne Atchison, don't you think? Wayne was working at that, saying that God you know, looks like man when you see him. You know, he's got two arms and two legs, and uh, you know, that's, that's possible as well. He might have a uh, physical, when he enters our dimension, perhaps he has a physical body or something like that. Uh, it's uh, very hard to narrow down for sure one way or the other. And the other point is that uh, the uh, the seraphs in Isaiah 6 and the cherubs in Ezekiel chapter 1 and also the beasts of Revelation 4, they do have wings and they are described and they don't look like humans. You know, they have animal features, you know, uh, the f- head of a bird and the head of a a uh, man on one side and a head of uh, you know, an uh, ox on the other side. I mean, it's, it doesn't bear out the image thing. However, at the same time, many times when angels show up in the Bible, they look like humans. And you cannot distinguish them from humans. In fact, there is a, a New Testament passage that says, uh, you know, and entertain, be hospitable because you might, unaware, entertain an angel. So it goes both ways and it's just something I don't have any definitive answer on.
1: Um, Sean, I wanted to make an observation that was part question, part observation from your teaching this morning, but didn't get a chance to. Um, Talking about the one God and how first century Jews would find it absolutely ridiculous, preposterous and absurd to consider the proposition that God could be anything other than one.
0: What about 21st
1: century Jews? Well, I'm getting to, I'm getting to that, yeah. just let me finish. Because uh, most of the Jews I know are 21st century Jews. <laughs> so, in fact, I'd submit that <clears throat> it's actually uh, a brilliant, satanically brilliant guarantee that no or very few thinking Jews would ever accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah because of the doctrine of the Trinity and I suggest that that's exactly one of the central reasons why Satan in his attempt to thwart the purposes of God, in other words that his chosen people would in fact be blessed by the appropriate reception of the Messiah, that the very doctrine of the Trinity was developed in the very first place and unfortunately it's worked tremendously well as evidenced by any attempt you might make to begin talking to the Jew on the street about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, because as soon as you start talking about Jesus Christ, I'll tell you what thought comes into their mind. Oh, he is that same Meshuggah who thinks that Jesus is God. He immediately is discounted, and the opportunity for him to hear the saving, redeeming gospel of Jesus Christ has been thrown out the window. And I submit that that is one of the reasons why we have the Trinity in the first place speaking as a 21st century Jew. Yes, <laughs> just kidding. Thank you.
0: That
2: was a great comment. Yeah, we have, uh, sure. yeah I have a question about Genesis chapter one, um, verse two. You didn't mention about, but it said in the uh, and the earth was without forms and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Is that the Holy Spirit?
0: Yeah. yeah. So God's, the Holy, God's Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Uh, at least. Is that the
2: same? So. Is that the same Holy Spirit that Christ said would come when He returned to heaven?
0: Um, well, that's a tricky question. Um, <coughs> Yes, and I no it was. It, the, the Holy Spirit that came when Christ descended is at least that plus that Christ indwelling us but uh, I think the Holy Spirit there is a way of talking about God in action, God doing something in creation. It's often referred to as his spirit or his word or his wisdom it, it is a literary device for God for, for, for the Bible to talk about God as he interacts in creation while at the same time preserving the idea that God is transcendent, so that he, He's not, you know, he, he's, he's here via, via His Spirit, I would say. Um, and the idea of um, the Holy Spirit being the organizing influence of the chaos that was there at creation uh, harmonizes well with Luke 135, where the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, and the next line is, and the power of the highest... So it seems that those two statements are synonymous, and so we have that same creative activity of God at the birth of Jesus.
2: Okay. The other question I have is a little bit different. It has to do with we we understand that it says the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Christ, mm-hmm. but do you know where the verse is where it says that Christ also says that He dwelt in the Father?
0: Fullness you know of God dwelt bodily in Christ yeah. in Colossians what two nine.
2: No, but there's one where it says that. Um, that Jesus says, "I am in the Father and the Father's."
0: Right, John fourteen six probably right.
2: Mm, I don't remember.
0: Uh, there's another <laughs> verse to keep in mind on, on your I'd verse had list had do, there I don't would remember. be the, the I one in Ephesians three, it. the one in Ephesians three nineteen where it says that we are to pray that God would fill us to the fullness of of Himself and we would be filled to the fullness of God. We are also supposed to be filled with the fullness of God. All right. won't take any more of Victor's time. So. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening and check us out online at restitutio.org where you can find an archive of all the podcasts as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.